0: This evening I'd like to speak about practicing with a body. One of the things we notice in meditation is that we have, it seems, a body that somehow stands out to us in the process of paying attention to our experience. And we're encouraged and directed to actually attend to it, it's not just a random chance. And yet even if we weren't being suggested to pay attention to our body, probably we would notice that it was there. One of the interesting things and useful things about having a body is that our body is right here. It's happening right now. You know, our mind, seems it seems, can be anywhere. And, as you've noticed, quite often is. <laughs> anywhere. But the body's always here. It's kind of remarkable, isn't it? You know, we come back and our mind may have been on the other side of the planet 100 years or in the future or um, 10 years in the past and we come back and our body hasn't gone off somewhere no, our body's still here, it's really fortunate actually it'd be quite difficult to practice if after our mind spaced out we tried to come back and we found our body was wherever we'd been thinking about you know, it'd be a lot more trouble to get it back wouldn't it and so in that way the body is a really important reference point for us in practice and what we're doing here and so we are invited and encouraged to pay attention to it as we've mentioned it's the the first frame of reference, the first focus for mindfulness that the Buddha spoke about, the place that we need to pay the first place we need to pay attention (coughs) and uh, together with that is the the second foundation which is a quality of pleasant or unpleasant that or neutral—that is a feature of every experience—and the, uh, the third is states of mind, <coughs> and the fourth is the uh, phenomena that arise in the mind. You could say. And uh, we'll talk about these further as we go through the day. But initially, just confronting or reflecting upon this reality that we, it seems, have a body. Certainly, there is a body. We can uh, notice that. We can. Feel it while we're sitting here. If we're ever in any doubt, you know, we, you know, when we wonder if we're dreaming, what do we do? We don't try and pinch our thought, do we? We pinch our body. It tells us we're here. And yet, in noticing that the body is here, the fundamental feature of it, if we contemplate it a little, is that it's not here forever. The body has uh, been born subject to the condition or the experience of birth and having been born it's equally subject to the condition of aging as, uh, we notice as the years go by yep it's subject to that it's subject to the condition of sickness and it is ultimately subject to the condition of death it comes to an end having come into being it ceases this reality is of profound significance to our lives. We probably know that and yet it bears some further reflection. We can tend to struggle with or not really want to face the reality of our body. How it is and the fact that it is not forever is something that we tend to shy away from actually engaging with. And here we're invited to contemplate it, to actually look, to see, well what is this? Well here Is my life, it appears to be my body. What's going on? What we may notice if we uh, observe the experience of our body and how we relate to it is that there can be quite a lot of fear associated with our body. And fear as an experience is one of the most challenging things that we encounter and most of us encounter it in the process of meditation one way or another And uh, perhaps a strong and clearly recognisable form of being afraid of something or perhaps in the more subtle subtle sense of not quite wanting to be in contact with an experience. We don't realise that it's fear. It's not like we know we're afraid and yet in some way we don't want to go there. And this of course is also fear. So there's a deep physical root to this experience of fear. We have this body and we are inspired and moved and committed to actually protecting this body from harm and ultimately from death. Like we we know that um, it's vulnerable, it's sensitive, it's tender, it can be hurt. We've had oh so many different experiences where we felt that vulnerability or tenderness in one way or another from childhood on. And the way we tend to do this it's first of all to say it's appropriate to take care, to try and protect to try and look after the well-being of our body but the way we tend to do this doesn't always actually serve us and it's kind of I think interesting to reflect on the fact that although we like to think of ourselves as sort of highly advanced evolved sort of human sort of human beings and you know sometimes in the uh, the way we think of it like the uh, the highest point of biological evolution or you know creation depending how we uh, look at it And yet actually most of what goes on for us is actually very much in line with the the very basic experience of of all creatures. Could I ask, uh, with uh, the talk, not to lie down please, unless you're actually unwell. There's some people for whom the health is, is, you know, seriously challenged and then it's appropriate, but mostly it's actually helpful to try and maintain some awakeness and uh, uprightness of the body. And uh, there we can we can notice how we want to take care of the body by uh, resting it, and it's fine to rest against or lean against the wall if you need to. But uh, um, useful to stay upright for for both myself and and, and seeing you and uh, yourself and listening. I think. So we tend to react. We tend to express this caring for the body in ways that are particularly. Conditioned and habitual, and that we can see is um, revealed in the, uh, the kingdom of, of creatures. Who we may, if we really reflect on things, see ourselves as not that different to. And we know from psychology, and uh, probably most of us have heard of the sort of the, the fight and flight response that the, the basic ways of protecting oneself, escape from that which threatens us, or engage with it in such ways to scare it off. And uh, these, these things we experience in the form of fear to escape or anger, to push away. These things we can notice arising in our meditation practice. Sometimes we encounter something that's difficult, we have a sense of shrinking or, or pulling away. It's like there's some part of our experience that, that's painful or uncomfortable to us. And we feel ourselves in fear of what's going to happen, that there's pain, there's pain happening and um, we're feeling it's in our knees and we notice it's, it's been here a little while now and it hasn't gone away and, and then we start to think, pain, thank gosh what's happening, maybe something's gone wrong maybe this is really bad Maybe, and we notice ourselves just kind of feeling contracted and small it's like we start to almost freeze sometimes in the face of pain and this is a, its a little bit like... Um, There's a particular animal in North America, the possum, different from the uh, Australian possum and this this animal which you you may have heard of the expression playing possum Mm -hmm. run into this expression, when attacked by a predator it just freezes, it plays dead it just stops doing anything and most of its predators only eat live creatures, live prey so they don't attack it and so it's a great strategy, it actually works a good amount of the time you know, you have a a great big bear or a mountain lion running towards you or a coyote or a wolf, you just play dead, they're not interested and they go away of course the problem with it is that if they happen to be interested nonetheless, you're there lying, Mm -hmm. not moving you're kind (laughs) of, you know, easy prey Um, and what we can notice sometimes is we kind of find ourselves shrinking or contracting or tightening there's a way in which that often has in it fear And fear expressed as a contraction. It's like we freeze. We literally freeze. We've probably all seen a rabbit in the headlights of a car freezing, unable to move. And that experience is something that we can actually find in ourselves, in our our physical structure, that tendency to contract, to freeze, to harden, to solidify, to lose our ability to move, to effectively become as if we were dead, And that's uh, one of the ways we tend to go. The other way that we tend to go is that we react in anger. We actually try and push away at something. And rather than shrinking or becoming as though dead, we actually try and become larger or get bigger or more than we actually are. And, uh, you know, again, sort of, I find it interesting to reflect on how our body plays this out. You've all probably seen a cat that's been frightened. And you know how all that fur stands up? So it looks a lot bigger? It's designed to make it look bigger so it will scare away whatever is threatening it or not look like it's prey for that thing. And when we feel fear, when know, prickling on the back of the neck, this isn't news to you, it just comes to reflect on it. It's it's like we're trying to make our fur stand up so we can look bigger and scare Mm -hmm. something. It's a biological response to being threatened. We try and get bigger. Bodily we can see that in that very sort of of primitive and ineffective response but more we notice in our thinking when we start to react from that place of fighting it tends to come in the form of anger it tends to come in the form of projecting a story of of blame or of certainty that that has in it that has in it a sense of somehow puffing ourselves up anger has its place in our process as a way of it kind of it allows the energy of our life to burst through the paralysis of fear. So it has its place, but we can also experience it as something that leads to a lot of conflict and a lot of pain for us. That we we notice ourselves attacking it seems our experience or whoever appears to be to blame for our experience, which is often it seems ourselves. If we can't find someone else to blame, and the tendency towards judgment, the tendency towards criticism the tendency towards being hard on ourselves that we see so often it's a subtle or not so subtle form of attacking what's happened. It's like we're trying to somehow subdue or scare away that which we are feeling impinged upon by and so again in that we, we kind of in trying to puff ourselves up we can notice it in the thought particularly by the way the thoughts get more and more certain and more and more sort of demanding or authoritative in the way we might be speaking to ourselves or imagining speaking to someone else. Tendency towards self-judgment is often seen in this context. And, uh, and yet what happens as a result of it is, is painful. It's painful to us. There's a story a true report I'd like to share it's one of my favourite pieces and some of you will probably have heard it before but it's an actual transcript of a radio conversation um, between a US naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995 and it was released by the Chief of Naval Operations on the 10th of October 1995. It begins with a um, communication from the American ship Mm, the American, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Response from the Canadian. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. <laughs> American, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Canadians. No, I say again, you divert your course. And this is in capital letters from the Americans, so I guess that's kind of like shouting. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship of the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians this is a lighthouse (laughs) Your call (laughs) And it's kind of remarkable to see how much we actually where we, we laugh at the story and yet how much do we do just that ourselves That sense of somehow kind of passing ourselves up belittling the other one it's sometimes just another part of ourselves to somehow force it to submit to our will get out of my way you're an obstruction you're an obstacle you're a distraction whatever it is that we're speaking to is somehow been made wrong and we're pushing it away because we're threatened by it because it's a problem to us and yet what chance has, God, has it that the lighthouse can get out of the way? we see that, it's obvious And yet so often in our life what we're doing is we're exerting pressure on what's happening. And yet what's happening is the way it is. What we're experiencing is the way it is. We can't, by exerting pressure on it, make it go away. And yet in getting angry we actually entangle ourselves with it. And it might not be that we're seeing or experiencing ourselves as angry. It might be judgmental, it might be critical. It might just be a sense of, again, just pressure. Control or a sense of force that we experience in our body is hardness or tightness or or rigidity. And, uh, And these experiences we need to notice. They're not required that we judge or reject them, but to notice how at times we are enacting this habitual pattern of either shrinking away or trying to push something else away. Contracting in fear or seeking to puff up and push out at something. And if we notice that going on, if we actually recognise it, then we have the opportunity to actually see what's happening here. What if I was actually to notice what that's like? If we see how it's not effective. and we start to notice that we don't have to put that kind of pressure on our experience on our body, particularly our body it's subject to so much pressure from the demands of the mind of what we want and what we don't want and to actually learn to simply be with the experience of body to see that so much of our inability to experience the body as it is is born of fear. Like we're sitting there, we're feeling pain, our knee is hurting, we start to contract and fear isn't about what we think it's about. Fear seems to be about the future. It's about what's going to happen if my knee keeps hurting, I won't be able to bear it, I won't be able to stand it, I'm going to be it's gonna hurt for the whole sitting. I've got, you know, seven more days. I can't imagine possibly sitting here like this for seven more days. We think I won't take seven days. They'll call. i have to call an ambulance before the day is out. You know, <laughs> I'm going to be in a hospital. We have visions of walking around, you know, with one leg um, amputated or a wheelchair ridden for life. <laughs> and it's actually we're, we're kind of grappling with this future scenario that's filled and infused with that fear. And yet, what's happening is happening right now not about the future it's so useful and important if we can remember that fear has the appearance of being about the future it's got a story that's to do with what's going to happen if and because the future is unknown then anything can happen so we can imagine anything and when we have fear in the mind we, we do we imagine the worst case scenario and it's true it could happen because anything could happen so we believe it and we lose touch with where we are which is actually and experience where fear, if it's recognised, fear is something happening right now in our body. And it's unpleasant. It's difficult. But it's happening right now. It's right here. And if we turn towards that, if we actually open to that, rather than act on it, or fight with it, if we open to it, then it actually becomes a doorway to transformation. Actually being with the experience of fear is pretty much the primary gateway we need to enter in order to be with the condition of the body as it is. Because the body is sensitive, because the body is tender and vulnerable and soft and ever so so much so when we're born and we're so soft and everything is relatively coarse and harsh and we, we are impinged upon what tends to happen is to protect ourselves so we become less sensitive we become less open in all sorts of different ways by withdrawing by hardening by contracting equally by wrapping ourselves in layers of different things and and the classic thing is perhaps shoes we wear shoes it's fine to wear shoes I wear shoes (laughs) but when we walk often it's kind of kind of like a bit of a It's kind of hard to feel like there's very much going on when we're doing walking meditation. Why is that? Because we've got something on our foot that's specifically designed to stop us having to feel what it's like to take a step to protect us from that, for the most part. It's uh, insulation layer. If you take your shoes off and walk, I'm not saying you have to do this, particularly when it's cold, it might not be such a great idea, but if you were to take your shoes off and walk outside, it would be really hard not to notice your feet it would be actually quite difficult not to notice your feet touching the ground because they're actually sensitive and when the experience they're touching is changing as it would be constantly if we were walking with shoes rather than having this soul attached to our the soul of our foot we'd actually find there was a lot of life being revealed there and this is again it's not an injunction to you know throw away your shoes but it's more an invitation to explore the realm of sensitivity in relationship to the body what actually happens when we start to allow ourselves to be sensitive and to feel is that it's actually quite naturally and without us having to do anything it's, it's more engaging it actually calls us more obviously and immediately it's not kind of artificial it's like of course that's what we pay attention to we were walking outside, we'd need to know what we're putting our foot on because we don't want to put it on a sharp stone or a stone or a bee, but if there's any bees out there at this time are probably not and when we live out of contact with the present moment when we live out of contact with our body we allow ourselves, in a way that isn't that helpful not really have to pay attention, to not really have to be there. Because everything's relatively uniform, like having, you know, there's th- this comment, um, it's this, kind of, I'm not sure if it's how well it applies here, I just remembered it. But there's something about, um, it's a lot easier to, um, or what would be easier, to cover the world in shoe leather or to wear a pair of shoes as a way of protecting one's feet. It's like, if we cover everything, if we, cut, if we wrap ourselves around an in insulation, we don't feel anything. And we might think that's a great solution. That's actually what that, sort of, that question suggests, that actually cover everything with shoe leather would be a way to solve the problem of our sensitivity. And that way of thinking can be quite predominant sometimes. But it's not conscious. We don't actually think, oh, I want to have to not feel things are actually happening unconsciously because we are not aware we're not in touch with what's going on <coughs> so much of the time and so we find ourselves here on retreat exposed to our body in a way that we can't escape we can't avoid, we can't help and that's not accidental it's not because you know, we've uh, or the tradition you know, the Buddha and the, the, the lineages of teachings or any more than it is Catherine and myself have decided that it's, you know, it's good to have pain and let's have some by sitting here in an uncomfortable position and not moving. You know, That's not it. It's more like let's acknowledge what's real, what's true. Because this is part of what happens for us in our experience. We tend to fear our bodies because we can't control them. We can't make them have the experience we would like we tend to withdraw from. Why, why is it that we're so much in our heads and around and around and around in a way that is equally unsatisfying to us? It's often because actually if we come into our body what we experience isn't comfortable. That's not to say that being in our body can't be profoundly nourishing and, and enjoyable but often our first contact with it when we're coming from a place of rigidity or from our reactivity towards it I wish to control it or to make it be a certain way when we come from that place to it what we encounter is often discomfort and pain and it's almost like we've kind of withdrawn our attention from it because it's uncomfortable to really inhabit it and coming back into it is really a large part of what we're invited to do and certainly in the initial days of our practice we're not just cultivating mindfulness we're coming back into our body because we're being mindful of our body. These two things are happening together and appropriately and importantly so. And to see how when we come into our body sometimes what we experience is uncomfortable. How we don't want that. How we wish for it to go away. Our back aches. Our knee hurts. We experience pressure in our head or whatever it might be, and there's any number of things we can experience. We often find ourselves thinking, you know, why is this happening? Because they're making us sit here for this long, or maybe because I you know, haven't got the posture right, or because my body, you know, I've always had a problematic body. All these reasons we come up, for, for, come up with to explain it. And yes, sometimes it's to do with posture that we're not familiar with the posture. Sometimes it's to do with illness or to do with old injury or to do with any number of things. But interestingly, that's not the primary reason. The primary reason is that the body is subject to this experience. And if you lie on a comfortable bed, I don't know if you've ever um, worked or spent time caring for an elderly or a bedridden sick person. I've spent some time doing this in years past one of the interesting and difficult things in that condition is that even lying on a really comfortable, good quality orthopedic mattress, as comfortable as you could think it actually becomes painful if you can't move if you can't change your posture it becomes painful the Buddha once said the pain of the body is disguised by the posture sounds a little sort of cryptic what I understand from this that he meant was that By constantly changing posture we avoid facing the reality that the body experiences pain. So long as we keep moving and shifting we don't have to really face that. And it might seem like a reasonable response, I mean sure, why should I make myself feel pain? Why should I go through that? And Look at the consequence of constantly shifting to avoid it. What happens is we're constantly moving and we're having to think and we're caught in strategies and ideas of how to prevent ourselves encountering the situation that will be difficult whether it be physical pain or discomfort from a posture whether it be the uh, the threat of old age and the infirmity and vulnerability that comes with that and how much time and energy of our life goes into somehow trying to protect ourselves from that when we're so busy, so stressed, so caught up, sometimes if we look at what's in the root of it it's that we're trying to protect ourselves from somehow encountering the difficult, from encountering pain and ultimately from encountering death and in between we'd like to avoid ageing and sickness if possible yet we can't now pain has its significance not that there's something wrong with it not that we have to seek for more of it there's plenty going on already you know, you don't need to make more we're not suggesting that at all but what we need to do is listen to it because it actually is giving us a very clear, unambiguous and insignificant message and we all know it actually that we perhaps don't like the message it gives but basically what happens is that it's asking us to pay attention here means this needs us to pay attention here and what we actually want to do is not pay attention, we don't want to feel it and yet it gives us this very clear message, pay attention here and the reason why that is was impressed upon me very strongly and shockingly years ago when I was travelling in India and I spent some time working at a street clinic in calcutta that was providing um providing medical care for the the poorest um the poorest of the poor living on the streets of calcutta uh organization called calcutta rescue and uh at one point in my time there as a volunteer, I was working with the um with the lepers who came in to have their 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 wounds and their their um Sore, And speaking with one of the doctors, I found out, to my incredible surprise, what actually leprosy does to people, because we all have this kind of strong association, I imagine most of it, like I did at the time, that leprosy is, the, is some horrible disease that makes your lips and your fingers and your bits drop off and you rot away, and yeah, you know, it's got this really gross sense to it. Um, and actually leprosy doesn't do that. Leprosy kills the nerve, so you can't feel. When you can't feel and it almost university is something that strikes people who are relatively poor, living in unclean conditions and without a great degree of education. What happens when you can't feel pain is that you can burn yourself on a piece of ember or something hot. You don't know it. You don't clean it. You can cut yourself or pierce yourself. And you don't really feel it. So you don't really know. You don't notice that you're getting an affection and that Gangrene is setting in, you don't actually pay attention to it until it's too late. And that's actually how you lose parts of your why. And it, what was remarkable in hearing this to me was I thought, my gosh, what a difference it would make to the life of a leper. The most important thing that could change their life would be to be able to feel pain. Because it says, pay attention here and it does it so well, doesn't it? we all know when something's hurting we pay attention there but usually we don't do so willingly we do say no, I don't like it, it hurts I don't want to go there I don't want to go there and yet the transformation that is possible for us when we actually turn towards and open to the experience of discomfort, of pain what a story I'd like to read it was also a true story, it was told uh, told to me and a number of others when I was practicing in Asia and uh, it, uh, recounted, it was recounted by uh, Ajahn Sachita, who's an English Buddhist monk who's also now the abbot of uh, the monastery in Chittu uh, in uh, Sussex and so I'll read this, it's a first person story so I'll read it but it's him When I say I, it's him. He said, many years ago I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit, pain, I would think, be with the pain. That will do it. Here am I, being with the pain, being with the pain. It's not working, you know. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Oh, that's got it. That's better. Oh no, it's back. Cushion. Maybe one cushion, two, three, four. Angle them to the left, angle them, them to the right. Not working. Doctor, you've got to help me chiropractor, osteopath, physiotherapist. For five years I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it. A very obvious truth. Yet I hadn't actually come to that. Accepted what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead I had acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like pain. Pain is good for you. Pain is bad. Make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into, I do not like. So one day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours, not moving, and I'm going to get over this thing. (coughs) Pain, pain, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? <laughs> After all the middle way, balance and all that <laughs> Hours go by, two hours Three hours Three hours and one minute <laughs> After about four hours I was so sick of this pain My mind had been through all the various circuits It'd Be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it And came back to, oh God, this pain the Buddhist. Oh God, this pain And finally the mind just rested it got tired out, I guess, eventually. Ignorance does get tired, after a while. <laughs> and has to take a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, I actually began to open to it. Without the, let's open to it and make it go away. Or let's open to it and that will make me go to some kind of cosmic space. i just, no, all right. Then I began to see the sensation throbbing away began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, no, no feeling going on. Resistance. Then with that a whole lot of bitterness towards the body, bitterness towards pain. Oh pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. That kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to the sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way, telling it to be that way. And I felt like this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved, that had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt this deep sense of regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it to say, please forgive me Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing, I always think of Scooby-Doo We were dancing, me and this pain, me and this dog and then the whole thing just exploded, very gently And the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, Thank you, finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing that the problem was, I do not like. I will not accept. I will not (coughs) open to you. Once you open, the lesson has been learned. The business is finished. Of course, we hear that story, rather delightful it is, and sometimes we might think, huh, hmm, so that's how you die. <laughs> the tendency can sometimes arise, you think, well, if I be with it, if I can be really friendly and kind towards this difficult experience, that will make it go away. And yet that doesn't work. As Ramdas once said, you can't be with it in order for it to, go, to make it go away, because it knows. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true isn't it it knows because what is that being with it in order for it to go away is just a more sophisticated form of aversion and actually the larger part of the suffering is not the pain but the aversion itself that's actually almost inevitably the larger part of the painfulness of the experience the rigidity the frozenness the fracturedness the conflictedness that we experience And we might just imagine, what would it be like if this experience didn't have to go away? Whatever it might be. Of course this applies, in terms of the way I'm speaking about it, to physical discomfort, but equally towards emotional processes or thinking patterns that that arise that we find difficult. What if this didn't have to go away? Could we perhaps just breathe out? And find that we're still here, that we're not annihilated in the moment we give up that resistance or struggle with what is happening, that actually we're more present here, we're more fully here. And in that deepening presence there's a, there's a possibility of connecting with a sense of caring, with a sense of kindness that actually wishes well for this body and this mind and this life, because. Strangely and ironically, all that resistance and struggle is actually just trying to take care of our well being, but in a way that doesn't serve us in there. That actually, what most deeply serves our well being is opening to what is happening. When we begin to open to things, they're able to move. When we resist them, they get stuck. And much of the solidity and the stuckness and the fixity that we experience in our Process of body and mind is the accumulated accretions of years of resistance and struggle. And just in the moment when we begin to open, when we turn towards, when we start to allow ourselves to feel, to bring a kindness or a friendliness, and a kind, it doesn't mean we have to go, oh great, I love this. Because you know, maybe we don't, but just the willingness to let it be is actually an immense kindness and what's the profoundest expression of kindness we might wish for to be allowed to be just as we are and seen for what we are not seen only if we'll be different not ignored told to be something else this is so for all things parts of our experience, beings there's an immense kindness expressing just allowing it to be as it is and meeting it there in that place, that experience When we start to do that, there's a way in which that openness allows things to soften, allows things to move And this is helpful, this is useful Because as things start to move, we actually start to come into a different relationship to our life and to our body we see that rather than this being a project of somehow requiring us to exert control over what's happening which we see as a hopeless task and a thankless one because we can't control, it. body has its own life. we start to notice that actually in that releasing it actually starts to feel a greater sense of well-being when we let go the marker of release is we start to feel well-being even when the experience continues even if the pain doesn't go away letting go is where we let go of our struggle with it our resistance to it and in that there's a way in which we begin to free our heart from being bound to the demands of our mind that says I will not, I shall not, I cannot I must not experience this and we start to see that actually we are experiencing it anyway we might as well open to that because actually it serves us and then we, in that process of letting go we might start to see the body as the body rather than something that we're so invested in being a certain way for us it. because its shape and its colour and its texture and its Flexibility and the sensations that arise within it. We can't choose. We can't. We can't make it be a certain way. So we might even question then: Is it really our own body, this body? We can't make it do all the things we'd like it to. Maybe it's. Maybe it's not quite that. It's not someone else's body. That's pretty clear. <laughs> you know, there's a sort of a certain relevant sense of saying: Yeah, this is my body. It's for me to take care of. It. But then. Is it only my body? I mean, what makes it my body? Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm living here. This is me in here. You know? But, you know, you're not the only one in there. I'm sure you know, but do you think about the fact that actually there's 1,500,000 million bacteria operating just in your belly alone? You know, if it was a democracy,
1: <laughs> if it was one being one vote, you know, you'd be out of power.
0: In a moment, these guys would be operating the show. You know? We don't think that we think no, my body. They're kind of you know invaders. What are they doing here? But who's to say? You know, why should it be that way? because we're bigger. And there's a way in which it kind of can be useful just to reflect on that that sort of thing. I, I find it helpful to remember. So it took me years to come to this place. Since probably I would say over thirty years, I've you know cohabited with. A sort of a fungus that lives between my toes, (laughs) and basically it's kind of unpleasant. It's painful. It smells bad, and it eats the tissue there. And you know, I have over the years spent vast amounts of money and invested incredible number of um, both uh, you know nasty pharmaceuticals and sort of wonderfully herbal remedies in this particular location of my body. And what I realized is a large part of it was a sense of it's not okay to have something else living with me. In the same space. But it actually doesn't cause that much harm. And it's kind of over the years, I've kind of come to a relationship of just, oh, okay, so we're cohabiting, you know. And I try and restrain it so that it doesn't sort of get away on me. But on the other hand, I'm not trying to get rid of it. I'm not judging the success of our relationship by whether it will leave. You know? And sometimes, you know, it's a bit more and sometimes it's a bit less. And it probably feels the same way about me. <laughs> but now we all have those things going on in these bodies different ways and forms how much time and care we put into looking after them and yet inevitably nonetheless in the end it's those little fellas that are going to get it you know, the bacteria are going to have the last laugh despite all our efforts brushing our teeth you know, washing our hands all that we do in the end they will be feasting when we're gone. <laughs> True, you know. not bad news. Why not? Someone's going to enjoy it. <laughs> and if we start to think or reflect like that, we start to say, well, okay, so the sense of tightness around my body maybe starts to release. It's like it's, like it's you know, sort of like it's my little miniature fortress. And yet it becomes a prison when we treat it like that. It becomes a prison. Because we feel ourselves limited by the limitations of body. Body is born and dying. And if we are this, and this is me, and I am the owner of this, then I am bound to it. Bound to that process of birth and death. But what is it? This body. We all have one. All beings. From the smallest to the greatest. All beings care for the well-being of their body don't want it harmed. All beings wish to be at ease, to have space and to have nourishment. Of course appropriate to take care of ourselves in the ways that we need to with regard to that. And yet, when we're not seeing our body, it's something that we have to force into a particular mould of experience. When we're not trying to control <coughs> it. And interestingly, interesting, a large amount of the discomfort we experience is the result of control patterns of ways that we're kind of stuck in rigid habits of mind that then become rigidities of body when we're not stuck in that so much rather than this being a place in which we're trying to get what we want and avoid what we don't want in the way of sensations or experiences it actually becomes a field for exploring and wow, what a field for exploring, it's a remarkable thing look at what it does it breathes. Look at what it does. It senses. It feels. It distinguishes colours and smells and tastes and touch, and sounds. Remarkable that it does that. How does it do that? Together with the mind, the body is this incredibly sensory thing. It's incredible. And we see most of what it does, it does by itself. You now it breathes. It digests. It grows. All these things it does and its own nature. And if we, if we see it, if we see our body as the expression of life, which it is. It's a life. It's expressing life. We would also see that our body is the place, and a place, and the place where we can learn all that we need to know the Buddha once said within this fathom long body this six foot, this two meter long body all the Dharma is revealed it's all here, not somewhere else and so when we're no longer struggling with it, trying to control it wanting it to be other than as it is then actually our wholehearted entry into it is an entry into the the very nature of life itself and what the body reveals is the very truth of life itself so let's Sit quietly for a minute or two please. may our practice take us ever deeper into this moment, into this body, into the truth of our life that is revealed in this moment and this body.